Hey, Julie Leone here with season two of What's Your Thing? Season one has just been a joyful experience for me listening to people's stories about yoga, permaculture, walking, love, depression. And I continue to have those conversations to inspire myself and you with people who have a thing, a passion, a lifestyle, a mission, maybe a pastime that lights them up, energises them and makes life meaningful. So welcome to season two. Let's see where this journey takes us. Hey everybody, it's Julie again on another episode of What's Your Thing? And this week I've got Amanda Scott talking to me. And Amanda Scott, I first met actually John Wayne in Oswestry who, who um, organises a lot of things in Oswestry, talked about Amanda, Amanda Scott's books, the Boudicca series, and raved about her and the fact that she is a, another Shropshire woman. And so I, she's been on my radar, been on my radar. And then last year it was on Twitter, I think. Mm. I noticed your accidental God's work. Right. And that was, felt like a, a detour. So Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's an honour to be here. And, and accidental gods I mean it's a beautiful site so we will put the link to the site um on the show notes my wife will be very happy uh, I mean just stunning but yeah. just what kind of for me that felt like a detour from the from writing to mm. I don't know how would you describe accidental gods now what mm. is it well the the kind of pitch line is that we're endeavoring to facilitate conscious evolution but then we have to describe what conscious evolution actually is um so yes it is a deviation from the writing i i also teach shamanic dreaming which we can also go into at some point and i had a really big what we would what i would call a shamanic imperative one of those moments where the gods make it so clear what i need to do that there is no possible way to say no and what they said what transpired was i needed to go down to schumacher college in devon and do a master's in regenerative economics which was so completely not on my radar. You know, I started off as a vet and then I was, as you say, writing novels. And by the time there I'd written the Boudicca books, the Rome books, I was moving on to, I'd done Joan of Arc and I was just in the middle of um, the most recently published one, which is Second World War. Trying to say stuff that seemed useful to say. And then economics, really? Are you serious? So I spent a year down in Devon um, which was utterly life-changing. It's, I don't know how much you know about Schumacher, but it was all residential in the days before COVID, obviously. Mm. Um, and it was run as, a, as an ashram. Um, the guy who set it up, Satish Kumar, was a Jain monk and he's, you know, head, hands and heart. So you get up in the morning and meditate and then all have breakfast together. And then some people would clear up and some people would be making lunch and some people would be hoovering the floors and some people would be cleaning the loos and some people would be doing the gardening. And then we'd have class and then we'd eat lunch together and go through that whole cleaning, making, clearing thing again, and then more class. And then every single evening, there was something totally life transforming happening. It was, it was amazing. And I was easily old enough to be mother, if not grandmother to everyone else in my year. Um, and I think there were 17 people of whom seven were native English speakers. And one of those was Irish. So um, it was a really, really amazing experience. And I came back 
and and life was different. We moved over the hill from one tiny little village on the clan to another tiny little village on the clan, but uh, we moved to a small holding. We're trying to promote regenerative agriculture in the area, um, setting up groups for that, trying to grow our own food, trying to regenerate the land. Um, and I haven't written a book since. Um, and, and I'm doing a lot of other stuff, but part of what came out of that, and it's quite a long story that we haven't really got time for, but um, was that I was teaching shamanic dreaming and I needed to start teaching at scale. Another of these shamanic imperatives was you need to start teaching at scale. And I have no idea what that means. But over the year of 2019, it became apparent that accidental gods was what it meant. And accidental gods is, so I think we're very, very close to tipping points from which there is no return. Socially, culturally, in terms of climate and ecosystems. And one of the things I learned at college, really interesting concept of the difference between complicated and complex systems. And things designed by people tend to be complicated. So a Boeing 747 is complicated. There's over 6,000 parts. But if somebody gave you the right sizes of spanners and a box and an instruction kit and a lot of time in a big hangar, you could build a 747. And, and maybe by the 10th time it would fly. And when it flies, it flies predictably. You know, you pull back on the stick, it goes up, you push down, it goes down, you turn left, it turns left. It doesn't do things unpredictably. And if a bit breaks, you fix it and everything is back to being fixed. Um, and people like complicated things. One of the real problems I think with modern medicine, and I started off life as a veterinary anesthetist, so I had some insight, is that we have decided that people are complicated. You know, if, if we fix your gastric ulcer, it's pretty much like fixing the fan belt in the car. Everything will move as it is. Um, and we're not. People are complex. And the thing about complex systems, biological systems are complex. Um, so a cell is complex. An organ, which is an agglutination of cells, is complex. A person, which is a concatenation of organs, is complex. A society is hyper-complex. And the culture we have now is, is beyond hyper-complex. And one of the things that I learned at college in complex systems, there's this theory that it comes out of <coughs> a physics guy called Ilya Prigozhin, who, who got a Nobel Prize for this, was that they reach a point of maximal complexity, after which something has to give. And they, the timeline bifurcates. They either crash into chaos and extinction, or they emerge to a new system. And the point about emerging to a new system is that it's utterly unpredictable from the perspective of the previous system. This isn't just a paradigm shift. This is, this is a complete shift of what it is to be human on this planet. And so I think, I think on all kinds of levels, we're really near that point of maximal complexity. And we either crash into extinction or we emerge to a new system. And, and sitting down really thinking about this and doing the meditations, doing the shamanic work. If I don't, if I believe that, which I do, then it is my responsibility to put everything I've got into getting us to that emergence to a new system. It, we might not succeed, but we're not gonna succeed because I wasn't trying hard enough. So, so accidental gods is, is my trying of how can I, first of all, what do I think that looks like? Because it is unpredictable. But I think it's relatively straightforward to predict 
the states of mind that will arise because i think so the second part of this is that i think what it will entail is is conscious evolution which is evolution of our consciousness consciously chosen because we haven't got time for any other kind of evolution you know the, the kind where as somebody once said evolution is the process by which clouds of hydrogen gas become rose bushes and giraffes and people which is great but it's very slow Mm-hmm. You know, aeons between the clouds of hydrogen gas and human consciousness now and if we're going to shift we haven't got time for somebody's kids to be slightly more conscious and their kids to be slightly more conscious and their kids if it's even a way of being conscious that promotes the more likelihood of more kids you know it, we, we've stopped physiological evolution it's not happening mm. anymore so if we're going to do this in the time frames that i think we've got which is years less not decades then it has to be a different, a totally, wholly, completely different level of evolution. And so conscious evolution is not my idea. It's all over those corners of the internet devoted to it. But what I wasn't finding there was ways that sounded to me like we could actually get there. There were people going, well, we just need to meditate. You know, a few hundred hours more meditation, everybody in the world will get there. And I think, A, have you, have you any idea how hard it is to get people to meditate? I've been trying to get my shamanic mm. students to meditate it's 15 years and they're still not doing it. And I, you know, I'm explaining to them in detail, I think, why. Um, and then actually, you know, if all it took was a few more people meditating a bit longer, I think we'd be there. Yeah. And then the next option is, is we just philosophize a bit more. We just think a bit harder about the problem yeah. of humanity and we'll get there. And you think, no, really, that kind of attitude is what got us here. And then the third option is we just implant nanochips in our brains. Yay. And then we'll become something completely different. I think, uh, no, I mean, feel free. But first, go and watch Sam Harris's TED Talk on AI. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Sam Harris, but his TED Talk on AI, just watch that. And then you can be first in the queue for having the silicon chip implanted in your brain, because I'm not going to be there. Um, and I'll watch with great interest. There's so much in that that you've talked about. and. Um, so when I came across the accidental God stuff, I think um, it, you in, I think I'd been aware of systems theory from my coaching work, family systems theory. Okay. But I, I think it made me dive in deeper. And I think for me, then I I kind of followed the trail. You know how you do. And I went yeah. off and read Joanna Macy and oh, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And and then Rebecca Solnit is it hope, yes. hope in the dark. So. I don't know, maybe, mm. can we just, and then we'll come back, but I just, can you say yeah. a bit more about your understanding of systems theory? Because for me, I think that was quite a shift in my way of thinking, the kind of randomness and chaos, but also the kind of opportunities and tipping points. And I don't know, that was, yeah. I think it's, and I've taken those ideas and the reading that I've done and kind of tried to speak to people about it, but it's still, People are not where you've it. got to. It's probably easier than me just leaping in. With okay, so, so, so when I try to talk to people about it, about the, the sense that there are, you know, because of all the complexity, there's there's things that we can't predict happening. And, be, you know, we can't, there's no linearity because, be, you know, Tiananmen Square doesn't, so whatever happened there, whether it succeeded or failed, we, we can't sell because we can't see the offshoots. Yes. And, you know, Greta doing her thing and, okay, yep. you know, she hasn't done that for 18 months or does that mean it's failed? Well, no, because we don't know where that's planted seeds. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think the thing with the linearity is that because people want A to interact with B so that we get C, and then when we don't get C, it feels like that's not working. Yes, yes, we want cause and effect. And we want tomorrow to be an iteration of yesterday, partly, I think, because that's safe, because, because human psychology, human neurophysiology likes predictability. And we are pattern matching beings. You know, the, the patterning instinct, Jeremy Lunt, um, is, is a really interesting book. There's, there's large sections of the first five paragraphs, not paragraphs, chapters that I disagree with, but, but the concept that as people, we like making patterns. And so we like predictability. We like that the patterns we made yesterday are going to look like the patterns that we want to make tomorrow because, because thousands of years of evolution have, you know, if there were blackberries under that bush, last autumn i want them to be blackberries under that bush this autumn it's safe and one of the things i think is happening now is we need to lean into the unsafety we need to start accepting that that predictability is not a thing well and, and hasn't covid that? shown that COVID well you'd like to think but people are treating it as if it was predictable you know they're they're leveraging uh, i hate that word why did i even say it they're using <laughs> you know, out-of-date immunology as if, and now we can predict what the vaccine is going to do. It's, it's, it's a kind of magical thinking that I'm finding quite distressing to watch. Um, but then there's lots of magical thinking that, that isn't necessarily to do with COVID. But I think, so I think for me, what's really been interesting about the concept of systems theory is this non-linearity that, that in complicated systems, things you know, you put a little bit of pressure on your accelerator, your car goes a little bit faster. You put more pressure, it goes a little bit faster. So you put lots of pressure, it goes very fast. Complex systems aren't like that. They tend to follow hyperbolic curves where you suddenly hit that elbow, what the Americans call a hockey stick curve. And then you're in what's called the singularity of the curve where the motion with respect to the x-axis has basically stopped and it's going vertical parallel to the y-axis. And we are hitting so many singularities. The technological singularity was predicted back in the early 2000s. And then they said it was going to happen around 2012. And everyone's arguing about what it is. And I think they're arguing the wrong things because you get the groups going, well, it's perfectly understandable. Nobody's ever going to design a computer that could possibly compose Mozart or paint like Picasso or design St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and I have yet to work out why these roles held up as the epitome of human creativity, but let's leave that aside. That tends to be what they do. <laughs> um, and, and I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that the, when we design and build the silicon chip that can design and cause to be built its own successor, we are redundant in the evolution of intelligence on this planet. What does that mean? Uh, well, that's a very exciting question. I don't fully know, but what I am thinking at the moment, because we can't know, that's the, then we're, we're, then we're at an emergence of that, because that's wholly unpredictable. Then carbon-based life gives away to silicon-based life in the ability to manipulate information, data. But I don't think that's the same as consciousness. So I think it, we must be very close to that technological singularity now that we haven't hit it already. But if we make ourselves redundant in the evolution of intelligence, does that mean that we are 
redundant in the evolution of consciousness? I don't think so. But does that matter? Because, you know, frankly, if I were the silicon mind that woke up and looked around, I would look at which species is making the biggest mess on this planet and what do I do about it? Um, so I think, you know, that's a whole set of interesting questions. But then also, there's a whole other thing that hooks into our complexity. So I would say that for the last 2,000, possibly 10,000 years, since the agrarian revolution, we haven't really evolved physiologically. We're no longer under selection pressure to evolve longer legs so we can run after the gazelle faster. The kind of selection pressures that got us to the agrarian revolution as forager hunters became redundant. What we have done instead is become evolved socially. So we evolved language. One, one of the things I got my head around at Schumacher is all the other species communicate in vowels, except probably the large cetaceans which communicate in ultrasound that we don't fully understand yet. We developed the ability to make consonants and now we can make words and then we can make sentences and then we can share more complex ideas. But we can only share them as far as we can speak them until we develop the ability to you know, chisel marks on rock or, or you know, carve something into a bit of wood or, or paint something on a bit of bark and then we can send it a longer distance further than I can speak. But that's still, you know, that's a very long, long, long time ago and it's a slow process. And we get to the point of the written word and we get little monks copying things in cells for centuries. And then we develop the printing press. Whoa, now we can send books around the world. Whoa, that's big. And then we develop radio. And then quite soon after that, we develop the internet. A hundred years ago, the doubling time of the amount of written information available on the planet was a hundred years. By the end of last year, it was 12 and a half minutes. <laughs> so in the time you and I have been talking, yeah. it's not just doubled once, it's doubled again. The totality of written information available on the planet. And actually, if it was 12 and a half minutes at the end of last year, it's probably 10 minutes by now. And how does that feel for you as a writer? I mean, do you still identify as a writer? I do, but I'm doing, I'm doing television now because I think we have to change the narrative and we have to change it in ways that reach the maximum number of people and books are just too slow and don't reach enough people. And I, what I'm looking for now is funding. Anybody out there has got funding, look up narrativearc with a K, dot net. Um, we, need, we need millions, sadly, because that's what it takes to make good television. But I think I, that's, that's my imperative at the moment is we have to change the narrative. Tell me about narrative and story and why that matters because that's kind of the thread isn't it yes it really is it's the so so the key is I think we still have agency there's a really interesting woman called Maki Kashtan who says the wounding of the patriarchy the wounding of the agrarian revolution the wounding of our time is scarcity separation and powerlessness and those are the stories they say there isn't enough stuff if you have some then I have less and I am powerless to change the flow of that stuff upwards to the, the 0.0001%. And everything else arises out of that narrative. And our, our mythologies of today, the television, the films, the things that tell us what our culture is, 
are all predicated on that. That he who has the most stuff by the time he dies wins. And the person who succeeds in taking stuff from the other guys is lauded by their tribe. And, and that's what's got us to where we are. And so, and yet, there are astonishing amounts of things happening around the world of people really, really engaging with how to do politics, economics, everything that makes us who we are, different and regenerative. But those stories aren't reaching the greater mass of, of our culture in time. And so I think what we need are stories that, that do reach us, that tell, tell us, give us a vision of where we could go because everything that we know about humanity is if we can envision a goal, we can get there. You know, we decide we're going to put people on the moon and fuck me, we get there in a remarkably short space of time. We want to build a vaccine for this virus and, and everybody collaborates. If we have a goal and it's a place that we want to go and we think that where we're going is good, we will do whatever it takes to get there. But we don't have a vision of a future where we get things right. We have loads of dystopias. We've got Handmaid's Tale 28 days later, mm. the road. We know exactly what it looks like. We get it really badly wrong. We don't have what happens if we get it right and how do we get from here to there all oh. of us not just the guardian reading you know happy democratic liberals who, who think if we're all just nice to everybody then you know the world will be a better place we need to take the QAnon and MAGA and Rojava and Brazil and Bolsonaro and Erdogan's Turkey and Iceland and the Amazon and Africa we, and China, we've got to take everybody with us. So I spent most of last year in between trying to get accidental gods off the ground to get it going with a couple of friends, another writer and a television executive crafting a series that does start where we are. It's, it's a thriller. It starts as a, as, a, as a thriller, but over time, it's going to change the tropes and change and give us a felt sense of who we could be if we got it right and how we could get there. And so that seems to me, if we don't have those visions, then we're all just wandering around like headless chickens. And, and even the little groups that are doing good stuff are doing it in isolation. Yeah. And, and are generally being crushed by the, the kind of meta-narrative of, you know, the COVID deficit. You know, it doesn't take much exploring to work out where money comes from and that there's an infinite amount of it because basically it's just made up on a computer screen out of nothing. The banks invent money out of nothing and then they sell it to us and we let them do that. But everyone's pretending there isn't enough. And you know now we need austerity because we gave 32 billion to Serco to turn plastic bags into PPE, let's not go there. Um, but we can, we just need to change the narratives and we need to change them in a way that it doesn't matter if the politicians are the slowest and the last, which they always are, that everybody is there going, we want to get to there because there is a good place. And there is somewhere our children will thrive. And there is somewhere where we're not going to render the rest of the species on this planet extinct. Mm. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, and so I'm curious about this. So I'm going to stick to the narrative for a bit, but then yeah, the, the yeah. importance of narrative, like, so, so I first came across you as the writer. Like where where did the narrative thread start? You know, way back was 
were you that kid that was reading books under the bed clothes yeah, yeah, and what, yeah. they, what did it mean so, so i've reread this is i've just reread little women um and some of the famous five books and i can see the seeds there of joe and george those kind of feisty female characters that are kind of bucking the trend just that seed i think was a much more powerful seed than I ever imagined realized. at Complexity, the time. Complexity, inaction, yeah. yes, the unpredictability. I, I have to say I've never read Little Women, probably not planning to. Um, <laughs> the things that I read, so the first thing that really, really made a difference to me that I remember was The Eagle of the Ninth by Rosemary Sutcliffe. Did you yeah. read that? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure I was reading stuff before, but that was the one that really changed my world because I read it around the time I was born and brought up in Scotland. And my dad, took my brother and I to see the brochs. Do you know what a broch is? Oh, no, 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 no. They're a big, it's a, a huge, well, I think a 50, 50 foot diameter, I think. I could be wrong on that. Stone, so megalithic, paleolithic structure, shaped like a beehive, but they were seven stories high. Not seven of our stories, but they had seven stories within the skin, a double skinned wall. And at the bottom, the cattle would be in the lower one. And then one above there would be fodder and then one above there would be grain and then the people lived inside these walls and this was stone age and they're throughout western scotland the ones that i saw were at a place called Benel, just opposite sky but there's others there was obviously the design of these moved around uh, people who knew how to build them were, were moving quite far distances and i remember dad took us there not long after i'd read eagle of the ninth and i could feel the presence of the past in ways that that I'd never felt it before I was eight or nine or so and I was just desperate I remember dad and my brother wandering off somewhere else and I just sat on the stones of this slightly broken down they're not intact anymore trying to reach the people and and reading Eagle of the Ninth for those who haven't read it is a Roman it's, it's written by a woman who was born in the 20s, the daughter of a naval officer. It's desperately sexist and desperately imperial. Reading it as an adult was just a horrible experience because it was one of my favourite books and I could barely make my eyes move down the page. Um, but the central thesis is that young Marcus is an orphan. His father, I think, fell on his sword. Certainly he was disgraced because his legion lost its eagle. And... Marcus has to go and get it back, basically. And he takes Eska, who's a native lad, who's basically his slave. But he's the wild, it's, you know, it's, it's terribly stereotypic. But they go north of the walls. They come up to Scotland. And in the wilds north of the wall, the untamed places, they meet the tribe that's got the eagle. And they meet the priests of the horned moon god. And these priests are wild and wonderful and do magical things and they have got the eagle and they've got they, they do all their stuff behind a goatskin curtain in a in a hut or a cave room. and i was desperate to know what happened behind the goatskin curtain i read every rosemary Sutcliffe that she'd written and nothing none of them told me what happened there i want to know and all of my life really all of the shamanic stuff Everything. I think the next book that I read was Last of the Mohicans because it had just been made on television. Do you remember the BBC? Yeah, did an amazing yeah, yeah. Black and white with Philip Maddock as Magua. And um, I just wanted to know what, how they talk to the gods. So everything I've done since has been endeavouring to answer that. And so, like and you, it's just life changing. 
the seed yeah and and so that what so you're using the word gods and i'm sure for lots of people that will be problematic so i don't know how mm -hmm. do you how do you use that word what does that mean for you um it means entities with agency that are created in first instance by human intent but over time with enough intent have their own agency that can can if they choose if their agenda suits it act as conduits from humanity to the all that is that would be part one and part two is that they have agency in their own right and they can move in the non-human realms so shamanic teaching is that this reality is a tiny fraction of all possible realities and that with training the shamanic practitioner can step from this reality to the other realities in order to ask for help to bring it back for themselves or their people those that's the absolute crucial bit if you're not bringing back help you're just tripping out but um the gods are one source of can be one source of help is that you going behind the veil is, is that you're a way in yeah yes exactly yeah definitely yes uh, and so how's that so then it's so that search for behind the veil because i know i've heard you talk about writing the boudicca books and kind of how some of those were were channeled and i, I am going to cycle back to the kind of i think this all links into the environment because you you had a, a vision of the past yeah and, and channeled is a bit of a strong word i wouldn't say they were channeled but i did the dreaming of them which is a slightly different thing. Okay, so tell me about right. that. So, so channeling for me is I become the hollow bone and basically I just take dictation. I write, you know, I think a lot of people who channel spirits and things, they, they're just basically writing or saying or typing the words that come from elsewhere. What I was doing was I was dreaming with the fire at that point. I would sit with the fire in the evenings and explore the world that was emerging to me and and see where individuals went it was more like stepping into a three-dimensional it was more like stepping into a different reality and looking around and seeing what was there and asking people questions and following them and watching and then coming back and writing about it which is a very different thing to me than channeling hmm. does that make sense the distinction yeah 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 it does and how does that so there you were stepping into a different reality and asking questions and coming back and how does that link to what you're trying to do with accidental because it, it seems to me that what you were doing there was looking back mm. oh, and what you're aiming to do here is look forward yeah yes yes brilliant well done that woman good good thought it was looking back but but i wrote the i was originally i wrote crime novels because they didn't take too much research I started writing the Boudicca novels as a result of yet another shamanic imperative. And what I was told under the tree when I was doing the emergency um, vision quest for that was this will change the world. And there were, there were three things, this will change the world. And it, it changed my world. So, you know, fair enough. They, uh, you know, language is a tricksy thing. Um, I, I had an instruction that in the first of the Boudicca books, I had to write only what I had either done or seen done in terms of the dreaming, the shamanic work. And that if I could show who we were and had been, I could show what we could become. And I thought that that would be enough. And, and clearly it hasn't been. 
you know, I, I genuinely in my arrogance and hubris thought that you get to the end of that series. I also thought I might end up under a bus by the end of the series because I thought that's what I'm here for. And once I've done it, you know, the world doesn't need me anymore. 20 years on, I'm still here. But um, I genuinely thought that that the world would look at that and go, yeah, that was a much better way of living. That was a kind of I wanted to show who we were before the Romans came, because it seems to me that the wounding of our world is the wounding that Rome brought. And we don't need that, you know? That sense of knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing is, is not how we need to live. Um, and we could live in context instead of walling ourselves off. And we could live tribally in groups instead of this bizarre idea of domestic arrangements of families. Um, and it would be a, a lot healthier, but, but guess what, it hasn't happened. So, um, so, so accidental gods also then, I knew that things were difficult and dangerous and that we weren't heading in a very good trajectory, but I didn't have the sense of urgency that I have now. And so accidental gods is the response to, actually guys, we need to change now. And if writing the Buddhist books wasn't enough, you know, I started teaching the shamanic stuff. I have students coming through, but it's a long, slow process now. It's 12 to 20 years, really, as a shamanic apprenticeship, and we haven't got that length of time anymore. So now what I had, what Accidental Gods is, is what, if I could teach everybody in the world, what would I teach them and how would I teach it? Okay, let's get this going. And clearly I'm not teaching everyone in the world, but, but you know, anyone who can access the internet could learn there if they wanted mm. And so that's, so it's part, a kind of, my understanding that kind of the bits that I have been involved with with your work is that it you're giving people tools for imagining differently but it's not just imagining like you know I, I at the moment my fantasy is some you know somewhere in Tuscany with horses and olive groves that I can yes. <laughs> um, it's, but you, you're also and you're encouraging people to vision in relation to nature and in it feels like it's not quite the daydream so i don't know can you i'm a great daydreamer but i think you're teaching people to do something slightly different yeah because dreaming is essential but um so where i got to in terms of the conscious evolution and it not being philosophy or meditation or a nanochip was that we were asking the wrong question we were asking how do we fix it and, and that attitude of it's up to humanity to fix stuff, particularly the stuff that we got wrong. Um, I have paraphrased, I can't even remember who it is now, but no problem is solved from the mindset that created it. Yeah, is that, it's attributed to Einstein, isn't it? I don't yeah, know I if think it is. It's something like that, but I don't think he said exactly that, but this is, that's it. Yeah, we're not, it's, and so my, I brought together my shamanic understanding with my systems theory and my premise is, we need to get to the point where we can stand, where we can reconnect with the more than human world in the way that is the heritage of humanity, you know, all through human evolution, until we chose to separate ourselves off. And even now indigenous tribes are wholly connected to the world around them. And, and it's not, I'm watching face grandkids, the youngest is three months old. And I see, you know, they're born as little forager hunters. Uh, Greg Baden has this theory that if you took a child born now and a child born 50,000 years ago and switched them over, each would thrive in its new environment. And I think that ignores epigenetics and probably isn't true. But it's 
it's an interesting mind experiment of you know the kind of mowgli thing of it's possible for a western what jeremy jonathan Haidt calls weird is western educated industrial mm. rich democratic people if certainly if we weren't necessarily moved fifty thousand years but if we were taken to the yanomami and left there pretty much i think you would grow up as a completely connected to the world around you so i believe that, that level of connection is both possible and necessary and once we've got that level of connection again and got to the point where we can remain balanced in our own energy in our own psyche with our ego quiet enough you know basically not living in in high beta anymore get to the place where we can ask what do you need me to do and act on that answer in real time and then that's the point i think if we get a critical mass of people to that then i think we're heading for conscious evolution because then it's not up to us to know what to do it's up to us to do what we can do what the things we are good at mm. and i think every single person on the planet there will be something that they can do that only they can do if they were balanced in the right place at the right time and so finding what that is by a process of connecting and asking not letting your ego drive or your fears or your hopes or anything else or or you know even just sitting meditating or stuffing in a nanochip god help us all is i think what we're here for now so what i'm trying to do is to help people reconnect and find that internal balance and then the last phase that i got to is so learning to ask that question and be able to hear the answers in a way that makes sense you know clear coherent and constructive and then what came in the shamanic work for this is the last phase is letting go of everything we believe to be true that donella meadows the amazing amazing systems theorist of her final one the top one of the leverage points that create change and and i i was at college and we got this list and we looked at all 12 and i the second to top one is change the paradigm and i thought oh yeah i'm a writer i can do that and the top one was abandon all paradigms and i completely didn't get that why would you do and now i get we have to you have to be that open and that's really hard i'm really working on that at the moment trying to teach the students who've got that far and it's hard because you not only have to abandon everything you believe as part of that you have to abandon the bit that believes it's necessary to abandon everything you believe it's a completely iterative loop but in the moments when we stand in balance without any sense of presentiment of what's needed of us simply asking the question then the world becomes a very different place and i think that's where we need to be so uh, i mean what well, i remember reading so i think i went from your site and found the water systems and vanilla meadows and all that stuff yeah. and got to the abandon all paradigms and and did a whole what the uh yeah, yeah. yeah. and so yeah. that's all landing it and i think so, so there's the two kind of bits is something about us as individuals and then there's us as the collective and I think so as you were saying that I was because it can feel very big and we're talking quite abstractly oh aren't we and not, so, I'm not talking abstractly I'm talking get out there sit on the hill and yeah. connect it's yeah. not abstract at all but anyway 
So, no, no. So I suppose what I was doing with that was thinking, oh, we were having some, uh, you know, there's houses being built in the village and there's a 400 year oak tree in the village and I could see the men with chainsaws. No. So I was with someone who said, no, you can't make a fuss. But oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so I did. And lie in front of it and chain yes. yourself to it. Did and you? I had the conversation and they were like, oh, no, we can't. It's protected trees. So actually, I didn't need to chain myself to the tree. Well done. But well I suppose done. it's that stuff, isn't it? It's yes. the what needs to be done here. Oh, yes. I don't need to just walk by. I need yes. to stop and ask yes. a question. Yes. Because the oak tree and you are one and are connected. And if they lopped off, you know, they cut down the oak tree, they would it would feel like they were cutting you down or your child. That's you know, it needs to be at that visceral level. And and then you said you at the beginning that you've been um, reading Joanna Macy. I think she's got that beautiful metaphor mm. of the three pillars of the great turning. Yeah. Of we need the holding actions, which is chain myself to the oak tree, whatever it takes to not let them cut it down. We've got the systems design, which is imagining the new systems, the new economic systems, the new political systems, the new narrative systems. And then there's the shifting consciousness is our third one of you need the holding actions because we've got to stop ourselves reaching the tipping points. You need the ideas of the systems within the current system that would be better than the existing system. But you need the shift in consciousness because in the end, we need to be other than we are. And those three all work together. Um, so you need to the people chaining themselves to the oak trees or lying in front of the fracking things or, or XR, you know, the extraordinarily courageous people who are standing up for XR, but you also need the systems thinkers and the people shifting consciousness. And lots of it is, so I think people listening to this, it, it's it's that bit about each of us individually in our own context, whether that's your family or your workplace, saying, well, no, actually, not that. Yes. Or yes, actually, yes. that. Yes. Or how about yeah. this? Yes. Of I, I want, you know, and I think this is something I talked to um, Alex Barker, who works with Sam Conniff of Be More Pirate fame. He wrote a book called Be More Pirate. And then she mostly wrote How to Be More Pirate, which was the, the necessary sequel. And it, he said, most people, you, know, you sit around in your company having endless meetings and everyone in that meeting knows it's a total waste of time. But until somebody stands up and goes, guys, why are we doing this? You know what, I've got a better idea. I'm going next door and I'm going to sort out this, 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 and this, which are all wrong. Anyone want to join me? And he said, if two people stand up and join you, you will completely change your company culture and it mm. doesn't matter how big your company is. That's what you need. And so how are you working with fear? Because I think when I think about the times when I have not been that person, when I've kept my mouth shut and kind of my head down, and when I've thought about, because you go away from those meetings feeling yuck inside because yeah, yes. you know you haven't spoken your truth and you feel yes. like you've capitulated or colluded and but it and then when I investigate that that's fear fear right. of being right. people being angry or fear of uh loss of status or fear of being ostracized and so I'm kind of curious about any how do we because I think that's I'm aware obviously through my coaching that there's there's so much fear around at the moment, yes. fear of going yes. back, fear of not going back, fear of yeah. the virus, fear of fear, fear, fear. So I'm kind yes. of anything about fear. Yes. Uh, Richard Murphy wrote a really interesting blog recently. He's, an, he's a political economist. He said the role of a government is to protect its people from fear. And they um, are failing wholly on that. 
Um, and I thought that was a really interesting standard by which to hold any political, elected political people. Um, that's a very interesting question because I don't face those kinds of fears. I fundamentally don't give a fuck what anybody else thinks about me. Oh, how did you get there, Amanda? I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I just don't. I think partly growing up as knowing that I wasn't heterosexual in a small Scottish village where, you know, the curtains twitched and everybody knew everything about everybody else. If you give a fuck, you have to either leave or be different. So you learn not to, I think, honestly, is would be my baseline answer. I'm, and I'm sure there are levels at which I, I probably do. But I, but they're so distant. I don't take any notice of them. Yeah. Um, My so, observation is that then it's not, then those it's not of us that are tied into systems a bit more, so that work for organisations. Yes. 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 That that there's yes. there's more entanglement there. There is, and so I wonder because I don't. You know, I haven't worked in a system since I was a vet, and that was you know I stopped doing that in 1999. It's a long time ago. And even then, it was a pretty open system and I could pretty much do what I liked as long as I didn't kill anything. So I wonder, I think, have we got to the point now where the cost of not doing is so much greater than the cost of doing? The thing is, you know, we live in this system. If you lose your job, you can't pay your mortgage, you lose your home, and we all know what the homeless look like, and it's a really scary thing. And I was given access to a couple of WhatsApp groups. I was shown them on a phone when at the beginning of the pandemic last year, our government housed all the homeless. And very quickly, some of the more right-wing political WhatsApp groups were going, you can do that. People need to see the homeless on the street so they won't be afraid enough. And that actual narrative was actually happening. And, and I'm just, you know, how are these people allowed to be in office? How? Because that's not what a culture should be about. Yeah, a government is there to protect its citizens from fear, not to create it, to make sure that they stay in their bullshit jobs, being happy little sheeple, doing what they're told. So, so it's hard if you're in a job and your entire equanimity depends on that job, then standing up against the culture is hard. I would suggest that we are pretty much at the point now where if people don't stand up against the culture, then the repercussions longer term are going to be much worse. But frightening people into doing stuff doesn't help. You have to inspire people into doing stuff. Mm. I also think having talked to a number of people in business, if you're not being authentic in your business, probably nobody else is either. And nobody likes living a life where they're not authentic. So there is a lot to be said for starting the conversations around authenticity, around what are we here for? Uh, I heard a podcast this morning and I have lost track of which one it was, but they were saying that 86% of businesses polled in the States said they wanted to be sustainable, but they didn't know how. That's, yeah, that's, that means only 14% didn't say they wanted. And that doesn't mean that everybody in those 14% doesn't want, it just means the guy answering, you know, the, the question didn't so if that is the case then starting to have the conversations with the people you trust and finding support outside so the be more pirate group they're creating pirate crews in 
hospitals and BT and big, big, big businesses, as well as much smaller ones. And they're responding really well. Um, and, you know, they're still selling widgets to people who don't really need widgets, but they're probably they're thinking about it differently. So, mm. so I think first thing is to find what is authentic inside yourself and then to act on it. And when my, my own sense is that when we are acting in alignment with our own authenticity, then fear doesn't come into it. I could be wrong on that. But I'd be yeah. interested to hear. Yeah. There's something about, it sounds like to me, something about like your identity growing up as being this is I've got to stand by myself because nobody else is necessarily going to yeah, yeah and and I'm going to write that story of for myself yeah. because the culture is not providing a story that I align with yeah. and it I wonder if that's part of it and it's certainly for me last summer lying in my hammock under the trees thinking I don't think life can carry on as it has been carrying on and and then having a it's almost like it felt like an visceral intangible shift which I can't really even explain but it's then just sort of I can't even you know people might go well what's the difference but there's an internal difference that a kind of more solid sense of it is there something about identity here and mm. I can't it's hard to put into words isn't it it feels like identity and then being able to express that outwards from a um do you know what it is for me it was roots it felt like my roots went down oh wonderful and so it was easier to I didn't feel so wobbled right right by the grounding. wind grounding yes yes connecting yeah. to the earth it's really important but it's also back to narrative and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and and the world that we live in and what matters and what doesn't matter yeah because um, i have heard so many people appreciating nature the birds their plants you know their homemade bread their cats yeah. how many cats yeah. are we talking about cats on zoom calls um <laughs> yes and and to, to know that that's enough yeah yes i think that essence of the scarcity, separation and paralysis at the point where we find agency in our connectivity and discover then that everything we need is there. And I think one of the things that's arisen out of the global connectivity we've got is that we can have communities of place mm. and communities of purpose. Mm. But it isn't the case that you, you, you can have an amazing community in your village, but you can also have an amazing community with people who you will probably never be able to hug and yet you feel really close mm. and I think that makes a big difference growing up in a tiny village in Eagleson where it was an extremely strong community but also I didn't fit mm. you know and and one of us was going to break and it wasn't going to be them so I think having that capacity to make communities a purpose with others is also probably one of the great strengths of this moment you know the pandemic had happened 20 years ago we didn't have you know we were still on dial-up we were we, we, no internet no zoom nothing like that we'd be in a very different place mm. 
do have a vision for the future yourself, Manza, when you're having a positive, you know, what, do you have a positive picture of what you think is possible? I do. Yes, I have. I have two sets of positive pictures and one is one that comes straight out of the shamanic dreaming and is a bit, I think it's a bit far in the future and it's a bit weird. But the the more, I think if we all dropped everything we were doing and worked towards it now, within 10 years, we could have a sense of a global community where people had differences, but had the emotional intelligence and the social technologies to agree to differ, to connect and find what they had in common. I think, so I think there's a bunch of pillars. One is we need to move to regenerative agriculture. We need, to, you know, Monsanto basically has to go bust or change its business model completely. We need to be working with the land, not against it. And we can feed ourselves without effort regeneratively, but we need to start caring about what we're pouring onto the land and into the rivers and into the waters. We need, and that then, once people are growing food, so you end up eating the food that's grown on the land that you walk across. And when, even if you're not growing it, you know the people who have grown it, and you know the circumstances under which it was grown, that makes an extraordinary difference to the sense of cohesion of a local community. I think, I think changing the way we grow and source our food is huge. Um, so we could have a whole podcast on regenerative agriculture, but let's just say that's what we need. It needs, we need lots more, uh, we need to be growing soil. We need to be building the soil back and that way we're sucking carbon in. Uh, there's an interesting guy called David Johnson at University of New Mexico, who reckons that if 40% of the world's surface area currently given over to industrial agriculture, we're moved to regenerative agriculture, we would be at pre-industrial levels of CO2 within 10 years. And I think that's a no-brainer. Why, why are we not every single person doing that tomorrow? So, so that. Along with that, we change our entire energy structure. We move to, CAT has had since, I think, 1990, Centre for Alternative Technologies had a zero carbon Britain plan. They know how to do it. It's not hard. We just have to stop the fossil fuels tomorrow. Um, I, I learned in the course of my podcast that every litre of fuel that I burn in the car melts one tonne of Arctic ice. Wow. I'm driving a lot less. And also something I learned recently from Rupert Reid is for every joule of energy that you get from burning that fuel in your car, 66,000 joule equivalents of heat because of the way that CO2 traps heat. We have to stop using fossil fuels. So we have to move our entire energetic infrastructure to being not based on fossil fuels. And that would mean also changing our housing structure. So those, those are technical and logistical things when I actually think that most of the changes that we need to make are within ourselves, spiritual, in our consciousness, and in our connectivity to each other and in the ways that we share power. At the moment, we have hierarchies. We have very, very steep-sided pyramids with a very few number of people at the top. And yet, when people start to share power, when citizens' assemblies and participatory budgeting and all of these things begin to work, they work really, really well. And we have the social technologies to fundamentally shift the way that we interact with each other in our families, in our businesses, in our nations and internationally. 
And I think if we could begin to bring those into play, and it is happening on small levels, it is, um, then, then we stop living in fear. You know, we, we would have a universal basic income, for instance. And, and that's a, you know, this is on Donella Meadows' levers of change. It's this sort of thing is right down at the bottom. The top level is that abandon all paradigms, change the consciousness. But in terms of creating a vision, I want you to imagine a world where you get up every morning and you have no idea what the day is going to bring, but you know it's going to be inspiring. It's not always going to be good. It's not that we're skipping through the roses every day. There, people, people will still die. People will still get sick. People will still you know, stub their toe on, on the edge of the table, but they probably won't walk down a city street being afraid of being raped and murdered and having to carry their keys in their hand in case somebody jumps them. They won't have to lock their doors. We will have, we, I think we can create a culture in which everyone feels valued and values in turn. And when you have that, then the sources of fear begin to bleed away. I, I can foresee a culture where, where there's challenge and where there may be things that are hard, but they're not predicated on fear, where they're predicated on connection and on an understanding that there is help to be had and that if we group together, then whatever the challenge is, we can understand it, we can either go around it, we can over it, we can fix it, or we can learn to live with it. Those are, those are the options of when challenges happen. We're not afraid of fear because we understand, we're not afraid of death, sorry, because we understand that what life is and we've made our connections to death and to the essence of life that that brings. And once we get to a state where we're not afraid anymore, then our creativity, you know, part of the reason we're in this disimagination machine that stops us thinking of different possibilities is because when we're in low grade or high grade sympathetic overload, we can't think. You know, it's impossible to be creative. It's physiologically impossible to be creative when your sympathetic system is in overdrive because all you're focused on is survival. We have to get people out of that. Does that answer the question? Does mm. that create for you a vision of how the world Yeah. Uh, and the I have a shape that came to my just the circles circles yeah 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 is it was yes. the shape yes I don't know if you listened to the Donnie McClurkin podcast that I did this guy with the Post Growth Institute he does a, a thing and people can do this listening you get a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle you could do this now and on the right hand side so you get your piece of paper we'll just wait people while Julie finds a bit of paper I've got it got it draw a line down the middle yeah on the right hand side you write future and on the left hand side you write present put your pen on the side that says future and then bring yourself to a place in your heart space where you can imagine a future where there is no fear or not not chronic fear you're always going to be you can go to the top of a, a cliff and look down and be afraid of heights but not where, the, where there's freedom from fear where there's connectivity where there's courage and creativity and confidence that being the right person in the right place at the right time. Really let that sense of that confidence and that courage and that exploration of a world that's an adventure come into you. And then take a breath and send it down into your abdomen. Again, that sense 
of living in a world where you get up every morning and you have no idea what the day brings, but you know that whatever it is, you and your friends and the people you are connected to will explore this day together. Every day becomes an exploration and a challenge of just finding out a little bit more about who you are and how you fit. And then without taking your pen off the page, draw a shape or a symbol quite quickly that gives space to that feeling. <laughs> okay, and then take your pen off, go over to the left-hand side, the present, and then do the same. Imagine that just feel into the present system, not necessarily your life, because we don't need to shine a spotlight on that unless you want to. But the system that we live in, this is a system predicated, I think, on fear, on scarcity, separation and powerlessness, on hierarchies, on there isn't enough stuff. And if somebody has more than I have less and I'm powerless to change it. And then breathe that down into your solar plexus and down into your abdomen. And then again, without taking your pen off the page, draw a, a, a symbol or a structure that gives voice and space to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Alrighty. So apparently, almost everybody on the right-hand side draws something curved, either a circle or a heart or a spiral or a figure eight or yeah. a version of those. Figure eight on its side. There you go. Yeah, that's the infinity yeah. symbol. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And on the left-hand side, they almost always draw something linear and spiky. A yes, or a straight line up and, and down. Or across. Yes. Up yes. and down. And yeah. apparently even like, people who are deeply invested in the market economy and free market capitalism still do that. Yeah. And we're not. You know, you and I are not. And so... Uh. And so we just need to find that within ourselves of that bit that gives that flowing circular infinity symbol that you drew future and then live it. So we are on that note. Is there anything? So I guess my final question is always, what have you heard yourself say that maybe is really important for you to hear? That we need to live our truth every day. That's still, I mean, you'd find what it is and live it. That's, I still, there are bits of, there are bits of my life where I don't, or the bits where I don't do it as fully as I could. And, and yet I also know that I need not to, I don't need to approach this with a sense of judgment, that sense of get up every day, don't know what's happening, but my God, it's going to be fun exploring. I, I still, my morning meditation is getting into that frame of mind and it, still takes work so yeah thank you so much manda so thank hopefully, you. It's been great thank it, you uh, hopefully we'll put some links on um yep. the show notes to all your stuff and also maybe some of the readings so thank yes. you manda scott you're very welcome thank you julie leone it's been such thank a pleasure you're welcome Hey, it's Julie here. Hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I'd love to hear from you too. If you live in a way that inspires and excites you, or if you have a thing that just lights you up and energises you, you can get hold of me at julieleone.com on the contact page. And you can also find out more about the writing, coaching, training, teaching, yoga, 
um, and workshops that I run at julieleone.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please like it and subscribe. And if you can leave a review, then please do, just because it helps other people find it so that they get a dose of happy vibes too. Okay, take care. Speak soon. See you at the next episode.